Hi, everybody. Carla here, and welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. Let's keep moving on with E. Lockhart's We Were Liars. Today, we start Chapter 40. Once upon a time, there was a king who had three beautiful daughters. The girls grew up as lovely as the day was long. They made grand marriages, too. But the arrival of the first grandchild brought disappointment. The youngest princess produced a daughter so very, very tiny that her mother took to keeping her in a pocket where the girl went unnoticed. Eventually, normal-sized grandchildren arrived and the king and queen forgot the existence of the tiny princess almost completely. When two small princesses grew older, she passed most of her days and nights hardly ever leaving her tiny bed. There was very little reason for her to get up, so solitary was she. One day, she ventured to the palace library and was delighted to find what good company books could be. She began going there often. One morning, as she read, a mouse appeared on the table. He stood upright and wore a small velvet jacket. His whiskers were clean and his fur was brown. You read just as I do he said, walking back and forth across the pages. He stepped forward and made a little bow. The mouse charmed the tiny princess with stories of his adventures. He told her of trolls who steal people's feet and gods who abandon the poor. He asked questions about the universe and searched continually for answers. He thought wounds needed attention. In turn, the princess told the mouse fairy tales, drew him pixelated portraits, and made him little crayon drawings. She laughed and argued with him. She felt awake for the first time in her life. It was not long before they loved each other very dearly. When she presented her suitor to her family, however, the princess met with difficulty. He is only a mouse! cried the king in disdain, while the queen screamed and ran from the throne room in fear. Indeed, the entire kingdom, from royalty to servants, viewed the mouse suitor with suspicion and discomfort. He is unnatural, people said of him, an animal masquerading as a person. The tiny princess did not hesitate. She and the mouse left the palace and traveled far, far away. In a foreign land, they were married, made a home for themselves, filled it with books and chocolate, and lived happily ever after. If you want to live where people are not afraid of mice, you must give up living in palaces. A giant wields a rusty saw. He gloats and hums as he works, slicing through my forehead and into the mind behind it. I have less than four weeks to find out the truth. Granddad calls me Marin. The twins are stealing sleeping pills and diamond earrings. Mummy argued with the aunts over the Boston house. Base Bess hates cuddle down. Carrie roams the island at night. Will has bad dreams. Gat is Heathcliff. Gat thinks I do not know him, and maybe he is right. I take pills, drink water. The room is dark. Mummy stands in the doorway, watching me. I do not speak to her. I am in bed for two days. Every now and then, the sharp pain wanes to an ache. Then, if I am alone, I sit up and write on the cluster of notes above my bed questions more than answers. The morning I feel better, Granddad comes over to Windmere early. He's wearing white linen pants and a blue sport jacket. I am in shorts and a t-shirt, throwing balls for the dogs in the yard. Mummy is already up at New Claremont. I'm heading to Edgartown, Granddad said, scratching his 
scratching Bosch's ears. You want to come? If you don't mind an old man's company. I don't know, I joke. I'm so busy with these spit-covered tennis balls. Could be all day. I'll take you to the bookstore, Katie, but buy you presents like I used to. How about fudge? Granddad laughs. Sure, fudge. Did mommy put you up to this? No, he scratches his tufty white hair. But Bess doesn't want me driving the motorboat alone. She says I could get disoriented. I'm not allowed to drive the motorboat either. I know, he says, holding up the keys. But Bess and Penny aren't boss here. I am. We decide to eat breakfast in town. We want to get the boat away from the Beechwood dock before the aunts catch us. Edgartown is a nautical sweetie pie village on Martha's Vineyard. It takes 20 minutes to get there. It's all white picket fences and white wooden homes with flowery yards. Shops sell tourist stuff, ice cream, pricey clothes, antique jewelry. Boats leave from the harbor for fishing trips and scenic cruises. Granddad seems like his old self. He's tossing money around, treats me to espresso and croissants at a little bakery with stools by a window, then tries to buy me books at the Edgartown bookshop. When I refuse the gift, he shakes his head at my giveaway project but doesn't lecture. Instead, he asks for my help picking out presents for the littles and a floral design book for Jenny, the housekeeper. We place a big order at Murdoch's Fudge, chocolate, chocolate walnut, peanut butter, and panucci. Browsing in one of the art galleries, we run into Granddad's lawyer, a narrow, graying fellow named Richard Thatcher. So this is Cadence the First, says Thatcher, shaking my hand. I've heard a great deal about you. He does the estate, says Granddad, by way of explanation. First grandchild, says Thatcher. There's never anything to match that feeling. She's got a great head on her shoulders, too, Granddad says. Sinclair blood, through and through. This speaking in stock phrases, he has always done it. Never complain, never explain. Don't take no for an answer. But it grates when he's using them about me. A good head on my shoulders. My actual head is fucking broken in countless medically diagnosed ways, and half of me comes from the unfaithful Eastman side of the family. I'm not going to college next year. I've given up all the sports I used to do and clubs I used to be a part of. I'm high on Percocet half the time, and I'm not even nice to my little cousins. Still, Granddad's face is glowing as he talks about me, and at least today he knows I'm not Marin. She looks like you, says Thatcher. Doesn't she? Except she's good looking. Thank you, I say. But if you want the full resemblance, I have to tuft up my hair. This makes Granddad smile. It's from the boat, he says to Thatcher. Didn't bring a hat. It's always tufty, I tell Thatcher. I know, he says. The men shake hands and Granddad hooks his arm through mine as we leave the gallery. He's taken good care of you, he tells me. Mr. Thatcher? He nods, but don't tell your mother. She'll stir up trouble again. On the way home, a memory comes. Summer 15, a morning in early July. Granddad was making espresso in the Claremont kitchen. I was eating jam and baguette toast at the table. It was just the two of us. I love that goose, I said, pointing. A cream goose statue sat on the sideboard. It's been there since you, Johnny, and Mirren were three said Granddad. That's the year Tipper and I took that trip to China, he chuckled. She bought a lot of art there. We had a guide, an art specialist. He came over to the toaster and popped the piece of bread I had in there for myself. Hey, I objected. 
Shush, I'm the granddad. I can take the toast when I want to. He sat down with his espresso and spread butter on the baguette. This art specialist girl took us to antique shops and helped us navigate the auction houses, he said. She spoke four languages. You wouldn't think to look at her. Little slip of a China girl. Don't say China girl. Hello. He ignored me. Tipper bought jewelry and had the idea of buying animal sculptures for the house here. Does that include the toad and cuddle down? Sure, sure, the ivory toad, said Grandad. And we bought two elephants, I know. Those are in Windmere. And monkeys in Redgate. There were four monkeys. Isn't ivory illegal? I asked. Oh, some places, but you can still get it. Your grand loved ivory. She traveled to China when she was a child. Is it elephant tusks? That or rhino? There he was, granddad, his white hair still thick, the lines of his face deep from all those days on the sailboat, his heavy jaw like an old film star. You can get it, he said about the ivory. One of his mottos, don't take no for an answer. It had always seemed hero it, it had always seemed a heroic way to live. He would say it when advising us to pursue our ambitions, when encouraging Johnny to try training for a marathon, or when I failed to win the reading prize in seventh grade. It was something he said when talking about his business strategies and how he got Grand to marry him. I asked her four times before she said yes, he'd always say, retelling one of his favorite Sinclair family legends. I wore her down. She said yes to shut me up. Now, at the breakfast table, watching him eat my toast, don't take no for an answer, seemed like the attitude of a privileged guy who didn't care who got hurt so long as his wife had the cute statue she wanted to display in her summer houses. I walked over and picked up the goose. People shouldn't buy ivory, I said. It's illegal for a reason. Gat was reading the other day about, don't tell me what that boy is reading, snapped Granddad. I'm informed. I get all the papers. Sorry, but he's made me think about Cadence. You could put the statues up for auction and then donate the money to wildlife conservation. Then I wouldn't have the statues. They were very dear to Tipper. But granddad barked do not tell me what to do with my money katie that money is not yours okay you are not to tell me how to dispose of what's mine is that clear yes not ever yes granddad i had the urge to snatch the goose and fling it across the room would it break when it hit the fireplace would it shatter i balled my hands into fists it was the first time we talked about granny tipper since her death Granddad docks the boat and ties it up. Do you still miss Gran? I asked him when we head toward New Claremont. Because I miss her. We never talk about her. A part of me died, he says, and it was the best part. You think so? I ask. That is all there is to say about it, says Granddad. I find the liars in the cuddle-down yard. The grass is littered with tennis rackets and drink bottles, food wrappers, and beach towels. The three of them lie on cotton blankets wearing sunglasses and eating potato chips. Feeling better? asks Mirren. I nod. We missed you. I, they, they have baby oil spread on their bodies. Two bottles of it lie on the grass. Aren't you afraid you'll get burned? I ask. I don't believe in sunblock anymore, says Johnny. He's decided the scientists are corrupt and the whole sunblock industry is a money-making fraud, says Mirren. 
Have you ever seen sun poisoning? I ask. The skin literally bubbles. It's a dumb idea, says Marin. We're just bored out of our minds, that's all. But she slathers baby oil on her arms as she's speaking. I lie down next to Johnny. I open a bag of barbecue potato chips. I stare at Gat's chest. Marin reads aloud a bit of a book about Jane Goodall. We listen to some music off my iPhone, the speaker tinny. Why don't you believe in sunblock again? I ask Johnny. It's a conspiracy, he says, to sell a lot of lotion that nobody needs. Uh-huh. I won't burn, he says. You'll see. But why are you putting on the baby oil? Oh, that's not part of the experiment, says Johnny. I just like to be as greasy as possible at all times. Gat catches me in the kitchen looking for food. There isn't much. Last time I saw you again suboptimal, he says, in the hallway a couple nights ago. Yeah, my hands are shaking. Sorry. All right, can we start over? Can we start over every day, Gat? We can't start over every day, Gat. Why not? He jumps to sit on the counter. Maybe this is a summer of second chances. Second, sure, but after that it gets ridiculous. So just be normal, he says, at least for today. Let's pretend I'm not a mess. Let's pretend you're not angry. Let's act like we're friends and forget what happened. I don't want to pretend. I don't want to be friends. I don't want to forget. I am trying to remember. Just for a day or two until things start to seem all right again, says Gat seeing my hesitation. Well, just hang, we'll just hang out until it all stops being such a big deal. I want to know everything, understand everything. I want to hold Gat close and run my hands over him and never let him go. But perhaps this is the only way we can start. Be normal now, right now, because you are, because you can be. I've learned how to do that, I say. I hand him the bag of fudge Grandad and I bought in Edgartown, and the way his face lights up at the chocolate tugs at my heart. Next day, Mirren and I take the small motorboat to Edgartown without permission. The boys don't want to come. They are going kayaking. I drive, and Mirren trails her hand in the wake. Mirren isn't wearing much, a daisy print bikini top and a denim miniskirt. She walks down the cobblestone sidewalks of Edgartown talking about Drake Loggerhead and how it feels to have sexual intercourse with him. That's what she calls it every time. Her answer about how it feels has to do with the scent of beach roses mixed with roller coasters and fireworks. She also talks about what clothes she wants to buy for freshman year at Pomona and movies she wants to see and projects she wants to do this summer, like find a place on the vineyard to ride horses and start making ice cream again. Honestly, she doesn't stop chattering for half an hour. I wish I had her life, a boyfriend, plans, college in California. Marin is going off into her sunshine future, whereas I'm going back to Dickinson Academy to another year of snow and suffocation. I buy a small bag of fudge at Murdoch's, even though there's some left from yesterday. We sit on a shady bench, Mirren still talking. Another memory comes. Summer 15, Mirren sat next to Taft and Will on the steps of our favorite Edgartown clam shack. The boys had plastic rainbow pinwheels. 
Taft's face was smeared with fudge he'd eaten earlier. We were waiting for Bess because she had Mirren's shoes. We couldn't go indoors without them. Mirren's feet were dirty and her toenails painted blue. We had been waiting a while when Gat came out of the shop down the block. He had a stack of books under his arm. He ran toward us at top speed as if in a ridiculous hurry to catch us even though we were sitting still. Then he stopped short. The book on top was Being and Nothingness by Sartre. He still had the words written on the backs of his hands, a recommendation from Grandad. Gat bowed foolishly, clownishly, and presented me with the book at the bottom of the pile. It was a novel by Jacqueline Moriarty. I had been reading her all summer. I opened the book to the title page. It was inscribed, For Katie with Everything, Everything, Gat. I remember waiting for your shoes so we could go into the clam shack, I tell Mirren. She stopped talking now and looks at me expectantly. Pinwheels, I say. Gat giving me a book. So your memories are coming back, Mirren says. That's great. The aunties fought about the estate. She shrugs a bit. And granddad and, granddad and I, we had this argument about his ivory statues. Yeah, we talked about it at the time. Tell me something. What? Why did Gat disappear after my accident? Mirren twists a strand of her hair. I don't know. Did he go back with Raquel? I don't know. Did we fight? Did I do something wrong? I don't know, Katie. He got upset at me a few nights back about not knowing the names of the staff, about not having seen his apartment in New York. There is a silence. He has good reasons to be mad, says Mirren finally. What did I do? Mirren sighs. You can't fix it. Why not? Suddenly, Mirren starts choking, gagging like she might vomit, bending over at the waist, her skin damp and pale. You okay? No. Can I help? She doesn't answer. I offer her a bottle of water. She takes it, drinks slowly. I did too much. I need to get back to cuddle down. Now. Her eyes are glassy. I hold out my hand. Her skin feels wet and she seems unsteady on her feet. We walk in the silence to the harbor where the small motorboat is docked. Mummy never noticed the motorboat was missing, but she sees the bag of fudge when I give it to Taft and Will. On and on, natter, natter. Her lecture isn't interesting. I may not leave the island without permission from her. I may not leave the island without adult supervision. I may not operate a motor vehicle on medication. I can't be as stupid as I'm acting, can I? I say the sorry my mother wants to hear. Then I run down to Windmere and write everything I remembered. The clam shack, the pinwheel, Mirren's dirty feet on the wooden steps, the book Gat gave me on the graph paper above my bed. Start of my second week on Beechwood, we discover the roof of Cuddledown. It's easy to climb up there. We just never did it before because it involves going through Aunt Bess's bedroom window. The roof is cold as hell in the nighttime, but in the day, there's a great view of the island and the sea beyond it. I can see over the trees that cluster around Cuddledown to New Claremont and its garden. I can even see into the house, which has floor-to-ceiling windows and many of the ground room floors. You can see a bit of Redgate, too, and the, and the other direction across to Windmere, then out to the bay. That first afternoon, we spread out food on the old picnic blanket. We eat Portuguese sweetbread and runny cheeses in small wooden boxes, berries and green cardboard, cold bottles of fizzy lemonade. 
We resolved to come here every day all summer. This roof is the best place in the world. If I die, I say as we look at the view, I mean, when I die, throw my ashes in the water of the tiny beach. Then when you miss me, you can climb up here, look down, and think how awesome I was. Or we could go down and swim in you, says Johnny, if we missed you really badly. Ew, you're the one who wanted to be in the water of the tiny beach. I just meant I love it here. It'd be a grand place to have my ashes. Yeah, says Johnny, it would be. Mirren and Gat have been silent, eating chocolate-covered hazelnuts out of the out of a blue ceramic bowl. This is a bad conversation, Mirren says. It's okay, says Johnny. I don't want my ashes here, says Gat. Why not, I say. We could all be together in the tiny beach. And the littles will swim in us, yells Johnny. You're grossing me out, snaps Mirren. It's not actually that different from all the times I've, I've peed in there, says Johnny. Gack, oh, come on, everyone pees in there. I don't, says Mirren. Yes, you do, he says. If the tiny beach water isn't made of pee now, after all these years of us peeing in it, a few ashes aren't going to ruin it. Do you guys ever plan out your funeral? I ask. What do you mean? Johnny crinkles his nose. You know, in Tom Sawyer, when every when everyone thinks Tom and Huck and what's his name? Joe Harper, says Gat. Yeah, they think Tom, Huck, and Joe Harper are dead. The boys go to their own funeral and hear all the nice memories the townspeople have of them. After I read that, I always thought about my own funeral, like what kind of flowers and where I'd want my ashes, and the eulogy too, saying how I was transcendentally awesome and won the Nobel Prize and the Olympics. What did you win the Olympics for? Asked Gat. Maybe handball. Is there handball in the Olympics? Yes. Do you even play handball? Not yet. You better get started. Most people plan their weddings, says Marin. I used to plan my wedding. Guys don't plan their weddings, says Johnny. If I married Drake, I'd have all yellow flowers, Marin says. Yellow flowers everywhere and a spring yellow dress, like a normal wedding dress, only yellow, and he would wear a yellow cummerbund. He would have to love you very, very much to wear a yellow cummerbund, I tell her. Yeah, says Marin, but Drake would do it. I'll tell you what I don't want at my funeral, says Johnny. I don't want a bunch of New York art world types who don't even know me standing around in a stupid-ass reception room. I don't want religious people talking about a God I don't believe in, says Gat, or a bunch of fake girls acting all sad and then putting lip gloss on in the bathroom and fixing their hair, says Mirren. God, I quip, you make it sound like funerals aren't any fun. Seriously, Katie, says Mirren, you should plan your wedding, not your funeral. Don't be morbid. What if I never get married? What if I don't want to get married? Plan your book party then, or your art opening. She's winning the Olympics and the Nobel Prize, says Gat. She can plan parties for those. Okay, fine, I say. Let's plan my Olympic handball party, if it'll make you happy. So we do. Chocolate handballs wrapped in blue fondant. A gold dress for me, champagne flutes with tiny gold balls inside. We discuss whether people wear weird goggles for a handball like they do for a racquetball and decide that for purposes of our party, they do. All the guests will wear gold handball goggles for the duration. Do you play on a handball team? Asked Gat. I mean, will there be a whole crew of Amazonian handball goddesses there celebrating victory with you? Or did you win it all by your lonesome? I have no idea, 
You really have to start educating yourself about this, says Gat, or you're never going to win the gold. We'll have to rethink the whole party if you only get the silver. Life feels beautiful that day. The four of us liars, we have always been, we always will be. No matter what happens as we go to college, grow old, build lives for ourselves, no matter if Gat and I are together or not. No matter where we go, we will always be able to line up on the roof of Cuddle Down and gaze at the sea. This island of ours, here, in some way, we are young forever. Days that follow are darker. Rarely do the liars want to go anywhere. Mirren has a sore throat and body aches. She stays mainly in cuddle down. She paints pictures to hang in the hallways and makes rows of shells along the edges of the countertops. Dishes pile in the sink and on the coffee table. DVDs and books are in a messy stack all over the great room. The beds lie unmade and the bathrooms have a damp, mildewy smell. Johnny eats cheese with his fingers and watches British TV comedies. One day he collects a row of old tea bags, soggy ones, and tosses them into a mug filled with orange juice. What are you doing? I ask. Biggest splash gets the most points. But why? My mind works in mysterious ways, says Johnny. I find underhand is generally the best technique. I help him figure out a point system. Five points for a sprinkle, 10 points for a puddle, 20 for a decorative pattern on the wall behind the mug. We go through a whole bottle of fresh squeezed juice. Then he's done. When he's done, Johnny leaves the mug and the mangled leaking tea bags where they lie. I don't clean up either. Gat has a list of a hundred great of the hundred greatest novels ever written, and he's pushing his way through whatever he's been able to find on the island. He marks them with sticky notes and reads passages aloud. Invisible Man, A Passage to India, The Magnificent Ambersons. I only have pay attention when he reads because Gat has not kissed me nor reached out to me since we agreed to act normal. I think he avoids being alone with me. I avoid being alone with him too because my whole body seems to be near him because every movement he makes is charged with electricity. I often think of putting my arms around him or running my fingers along his lips. When I let my thoughts go there, if for a moment Johnny and Marin are out of sight, if for even a second we are alone, the sharp pain of unrequited love invites the migraines in. These days, she is a gnarled crone touching the raw flesh of my brain with her cruel fingernails. She pokes my exposed nerves, exploring whether she'll take up residence in my skull. If she gets in, I'm confined to my bedroom for a day, or maybe two. We eat lunch on the roof most days. I suppose they do it when I'm ill, too. Every now and then, a bottle rolls off the roof and the glass smashes. In fact, there are shards and shards of splintered glass sticky with lemonade all over the porch. Flies buzz around, attracted by the sugar. End of the second week, I find Johnny alone in the yard, building a structure out of Lego pieces he must have found at Redgate. I've got pickles, cheese straws, and leftover grilled tuna from the new Claremont kitchen. We decide not to go on the roof since it's just the two of us. We open the containers and line them up on the edge of the dirty porch. Johnny talks about how he wants to build Hogwarts out of Lego or a Death Star. 
Or wait, even better is a Lego tuna fish to hang in New Claremont now that none of Granddad's, Granddad's taxidermy is there anymore. That's it. Too bad there's not enough Lego on the stupid island for visionary projects such as his. Why didn't you call or email after my accident? I asked. I hadn't planned to bring it up. The words spring out. Oh, Katie, I feel stupid asking, but I want to know. You don't want to talk about Lego tuna fish instead? Johnny vamps. I thought maybe you were annoyed with me about those emails, the ones I sent asking about Gat. No, no. Johnny wipes his hands on his t-shirt. I disappeared because I'm an asshole, because I don't think through my choices and I've never seen too many, and I've seen too many action movies and I'm kind of a follower. Really? I don't think that about you. It's an undeniable fact. You weren't mad? I was just a stupid fuck, but I'm not mad, never mad. I'm sorry, Cadence. Thanks. He picks up a handful of Legos and starts fitting them together. Why did Gad disappear? Do you know? Johnny sighs. That's another question. He told me I don't know the real him. Could be true. He doesn't want to discuss my accident or what happened with us that summer. He wants us to act normal like nothing happened. Johnny lined his Legos up in stripes, blue, white, and green. Gav had been shitty to that girl, Raquel, by starting up with you. He knew it wasn't right, and he hated himself for that. Okay. He didn't want to be that kind of guy. He wants to be a good person, and he was really angry that summer about all kinds of things. When he wasn't there for you, he hated himself even more. You think? I'm guessing, says Johnny. Is he going out with anyone? Oh, Katie, says Johnny. He's a pretentious ass. I love him like a brother, but you're too good for him. Go find yourself a nice Vermont guy with muscles like Drake Loggerhead. Then he cracks up laughing. You're useless. I can't deny it, he answers, but you've got to stop being such a mushball. Giveaway. Charmed Life by Diana Wynne Jones. It's one of the Crestomanche stories Mummy read to me and Gat the year we were eight. I've reread it several times since then, but I doubt Gat has. I open the book and write on the title page for Gat with everything, everything Katie. I head to cuddle down early next morning, stepping over the old teacups and DVDs. I knock on Gat's bedroom door. No answer. I knock again, then push it open. It used to be Taft's room. It's full of bears and model boats, plus gat-like piles of books, empty bags of potato chips, cashews crushed underfoot, half-full bottles of juice and soda, CDs, the scrabble box with most of its tiles spilled across the floor. It's as bad as the rest of the house, if not worse. Anyway, he's not there. He must be at the beach. I leave the book on his pillow. That night, Gat and I find ourselves alone on the roof of Cuddle Down. Mirren felt sick and Johnny took her downstairs for some tea. Voices and music float from New Claremont where the aunts and granddad are eating blueberry pie and drinking port. The littles are watching a movie in the living room. Gat walks the slant of the roof all the way down to the gutter and up again. It seems dangerous, so easy to fall, but he is fearless. Now is when I can talk to him. Now is when we can stop pretending to be normal. I am looking for the right words, the best way to start. Suddenly he climbs back to where I'm sitting in the he, to where I'm sitting in three big steps. You are very, very beautiful, Katie, he says. It's the moonlight makes all the girls look pretty. I think you're beautiful always and forever. He is silhouetted against the moon. 
Have you got a boyfriend in Vermont? Of course I don't. I have never had a boyfriend except for him. My boyfriend's name is Percocet, I say. We're very close. I even went to Europe with him last summer. God! Gat is annoyed, stands and walks back down to the edge of the roof. Joking, Gat's back is to me. You say we shouldn't feel sorry for you. Yes, but then you come out with these statements. My boyfriend is named Percocet, or I stared at the base of the blue Italian toilet, and it's clear you want everyone to feel sorry for you, and we would, I would, but you have no idea how lucky you are. My face flushes. He is right. I do want people to feel sorry for me. I do, and then I don't. I do, and then I don't. I'm sorry, I say. Harris sent you to Europe for eight weeks. You think he'll ever send Johnny or Marin? No, and he wouldn't send me no matter what. Just think before you complain about stuff other people would love to have. I flinch. Granddad sent me to Europe? Come on, says Gat, bitter. Did you really think your father paid for that trip? I know immediately that he is telling the truth. Of course Dad didn't pay for the trip. There's no way he could have. College professors don't fly first class and stay in five-star hotels. So used to summers on Beechwood, to endlessly stocked pantries and multiple motorboats, and to staff quietly grilling steaks and washing linens, I didn't even think about where that money might be coming from. Granddad sent me to Europe. Why? Why wouldn't Mummy go with me if if the trip was a gift from Granddad, and why would Dad even take that money from my grandfather? You have a life stretching out in front of you with a million possibilities, Gat says. It, it grates on me when you ask for sympathy, that's all. Gat, my Gat, he is right, he is. But he also doesn't understand. I know no one's beating me. I say, feeling defensive all of a sudden. I know I have plenty of money and a good education, food on the table, I'm not dying of cancer. Lots of people have it much worse than I, and I do know how I was lucky to go to Europe. I shouldn't complain about it or be ungrateful. Okay then. But listen, you have no idea what it feels like to have headaches like this. No idea. It hurts. I say, and I realize tears are running down my face, though I'm not sobbing. It makes it hard to be alive some days. A lot of times I wish I were dead. I truly do, just to make the pain stop. You do not, he says harshly. You do not wish you were dead. Don't say that. I just want the pain to be over, I say. On the days the pills don't work, I want it to end, so I would do anything, really anything, if I knew for sure it would end the pain. There is a silence. He walks down to the bottom edge of the roof, facing away from me. What do you do then, when it's like that? Nothing. I lie there and wait, and remind myself over and over that it doesn't last forever. But there will be another day, and after that, yet another day. One of those days, I'll get up and eat breakfast and feel okay. Another day. Yes. Now he turns and bounds up the roof in a couple steps. Suddenly, his arms are around me, and we are clinging to each other. He is shivering slightly, and he kisses my neck with cold lips. We stay like that, enfolded in each other's arms for a minute or two, and it feels like the universe is reorganizing itself. And I know my anger, and, and I know any anger we felt has disappeared. Gat kisses me on the lips and touches my cheek. I love him. I have always loved him. We stay up there on the roof for a very, very long time. Forever.
And that'll do it for this reading of E. Lockhart's We Were Liars. Thank you so much for joining me here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time. Thank you.